Hi Z, how are you? Hope all is well with you. <laughs> That's a nice picture that you have there. Hey there. How are you doing? Uh, doing pretty well. Um, surfing the tsunamis of life and playing with the chat GPT-3 which did make this piece of art for me in the world. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, that's cool. That's really Yeah, cool. this one actually, this one's not chat, sorry. Um, this one is the AI art one. So the chat GP is the for the words. And then this one is from, um, trying to think, I think a program called PhotoFox. So it's generated AI image. So I was incorrect. It's not chat GPT-3. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you, Katrina. Well, it's it's still very cute. Oh, it's so that. much fun. I'm it's this the playing with AI is um, I, 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 I would take me. I just would, couldn't stop talking about it. I'm having <laughs> a, I'm having so much fun. Yeah. yeah, it is fun. I agree. It's mm. really fun. I tried it when when it came out, um, and then um, right now I kind of stopped. But um, yeah, it, mm. it was a lot of fun trying it out. Yeah, well, and so is coming into the science society. So this is this is. I just was reading, um, you know, how there's a little write up made. And I was, oh, it's made by science punks embarking on exploring knowledge frontiers with us. And I just love this club and really appreciate um, the array, like the, the, just the array of people and topics and conversations and friendship that's here. So like bravo and thank you, my dear. Oh, friend. thank you so much, Z. It's always nice. You're always so kind. But um, yeah, I I think yeah, that makes it interesting, you know, to have so many different people working on so many different things. Mm -hmm. It's like a color helpful. wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and I do, I hang out in the audience a lot and just listen because that's just my style. So, but I'm, I'm support this room uh, immensely and madly. So, um, uh, I hope that whatever's happening today is goes well, and I'm gonna kind of tuck myself back downstairs and let you do your thing. Thank you so much, Z. It was really nice talking. Yeah, with you. you too. <laughs> Thank you. Meow. <laughs> it's so cute. I love it. Yeah, welcome everyone. Uh, we will start in around five minutes. Um, the presentation is on top and uh, I also shared the paper and then the lab website. I really recommend checking um, it out. There's so much interesting work in there um, that uh, Dr. Elinov um, did so far and is working on. One I thought was also really, it was really hard to decide topic to invite him on so his um talk is uh, broader um to like explain like um it in a 
really interesting way. Um, but, you know, there's really interesting microbiome work there. Uh, one is he discovered how uh, the mechanism is when people stop smoking, why they gain weight. And even if they have a healthy diet, and he discovered uh, that the microbiome is involved in how the microbiome kind of switches to a different uptake of calories and how that works. I really recommend checking out the, the lab website um, if you have time. And uh, yeah, there's a publication um, page where you can click on all the different works and the summaries are usually written in a way that uh, people can understand pretty well. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Because, you know, now we read a lot of about the microbiome and how it influences gaining weight and all kinds of mental health and all kinds of aspects of our life. <laughs> but when people like Dr. Elinav started, it was really not um, something people really believed in too much. I remember when uh, a colleague of mine um, did her PhD thesis in the UK in a lab that was also kind of pioneering the microbiome work. And the response of psychiatrists was like very um, yeah, that you can basically disregard this. So, yeah, it was a lot of great pioneer work that happened in the field that brought us to the knowledge that we are in that um, thing field and really looking forward to Dr. Elinav's talk. And he's also new to Clubhouse. So... I think we figured most of the technical stuff out, so we'll be fine. Oh, there. Hi, um, hi Ren. How, how are you? Uh, to unmute. Uh, can, you, can you hear me okay? So to unmute, um, there is a little microphone button on the bottom um, right hand. And if you click on that, uh, we will be able to hear you. Um, if it's the very first time you are joining a room, it could be that the unmute function doesn't work right away. So um, a way to get around this is to just uh, rejoin the room. So to get out and come back in again. Um, yeah, Iran, um, I sent you an email asking if you can hear me and I also wrote in the chat, which doesn't help you much right now, but um, 
yeah, if that doesn't work, it's um, just restarting the app or uh, just joining again. The other thing is, okay. Um, the other thing is that um, university Wi-Fi's tend to block the interaction. Uh, yeah, because I know that the Weizmann Institute, we had that with guest speakers from the institutes before um, they block um, social media interaction. So if you could uh, switch to cellular data. Okay, we will be figuring it out shortly. Uh, Professor Iran will uh, switch to his cell phone and then it should be just fine. Yeah, um, we had guest speakers from the Weizmann um, Institute before and I remember that Oh, can you hear us now, Iran? Um, so uh, the unmute button is all the way on the bottom right. There's a little microphone symbol. And if you press that. You should hear yeah. me now. Yes, perfect. I remembered that we had months ago um, from the Weizmann Institute um, a few guest speakers and that we had that issue before some institutes just you can you can go on the app or on the social media app but then you're not allowed to interact it's a very specific block way of blocking so um, i just remember okay. so yeah and then the slides since it's not the screen share uh it's fine if you have them on your desktop separately. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do. Don't worry. Great. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's really an honor having you here. I was just telling the audience um, about your different type of work you have and how the imp impressive it is all the different mechanisms you uh, showed, even with quitting smoking and gaining weight and 
all the different work you did. It's it's really uh, very impressive. So we're very honored having you here. And uh, before we start, uh, let me give the audience a short introduction so they get to know you a little bit better. Um, and then we go from there, uh, if that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome um, to uh, Professor Erin Elinaf. Um, I shared the lab website in the chat for everyone and also the paper link. Um, uh, Professor Erin Elinaf is at the Weizmann Institute of Science and um, he uh, did his Doctor of Medicine at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And um, his uh, doctor is PhD at the Weizmann Institute of Science. And then he did a postdoc at uh, Yale University. Um, when then later he did a senior, uh, he had a senior fellow position at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. And, um, and then he was also the division director of the German Cancer Research Center. And later, what he still holds today, he is the primary investigator at the Immunology Department, the Weizmann Institute of Science and research scholar at the Howard Huge Medical Institute um, until today. And um, Dr. Ran um, Ilenov, he, uh, is a researcher that is focused on studying the microbiota and um, he is um, also he received the Rappaport Prize for Bi Biomedical Research, the Levinson's Award for Basic Science Research and the Landau Prize of Immunology. And um, we usually start with, um, with a short interview if that's okay with you to get to know you a little bit better in a more interactive way. So our first question is, how did you um, become interested in um, becoming a scientist and doing research? Was it something you always wanted to do since childhood or is there something that's kind of sparked your interest if you look back? Thank you. <laughs> um... First of all, thank you for inviting me um, and apologies for the technological hiccups. Um, my, my path was a little bit unusual because I started as a clinician, I, I studied medicine and then I, I was um, a resident and a fellow in gastroenterology. Um, so I kind of visited the, the microbiome every day in my clinical practice, but uh, to be honest, I got a little bored from scoping people. Um, and uh, so I developed a passion uh, to, to understand better the diseases that I was studying um which led me to a very drastic shift in my career um and and i chose to to follow uh, both immunology which was very relevant to many of the inflammatory and neoplastic diseases that we were clinically treating at the time uh and also the microbiome which we were visiting uh, on a daily basis but uh, regarding as a waste product uh, which didn't make a lot of sense to me so um it was this uh, curiosity and, and quite a lucky timing that led me to um to study the microbiome um, at, at an era in which this field was actually just born. So, so I was there from the start uh, 
uh, luckily and and able to kind of follow this field right from its uh, rebirth uh, in 2006. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's really interesting. And I remember when a colleague of mine uh, did a, her PhD in a lab that started also in this field in the UK and how um, when she came to present from our program, how like psychiatrists kind of laughed it off when she first presented. So I, I, I was mentioning to the audience how, um, you know, pioneering the work was because now we hear it all the time in the news, but you know, it, there was a few years ago, not so long ago, it was, you know, very different. So, um, yeah, thank you for bringing us back there. And it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting path and it's really interesting to learn how uh, the different scientists that come here, how um, they chose their path. I think it's, it's really interesting. And then you already alluded to how you chose also the specific field you're in. Um, if you could tell us um, like some peek behind the curtain, how this specific project came about um, using phages uh, to basically combat the, the bad uh, germs, kind of. Um, thank you so much. Yes, so, so as, as I will shortly allude to, uh, uh, we try to contribute uh, towards uh, new mechanistic and causal understanding of how our body interacts with uh, the microbiomes uh, in it and around it. Um, and in doing so, um, already a decade ago, we started to um, uncover um, therapeutic targets and therapeutic strategies that uh, could enable to manipulate the microbiome um, in, in ways we, which could be um, potentially uh, very important uh, for disease prevention and disease treatment. And, and, and these include a, um, a growing variety of, of interventions that take um, or that exploit the fact that in contrast to our human genome, which of course is very important, our microbiome genome uh, is much greater, but in contrast to the, to the human genome is amenable to, to change and to manipulation in the forms of, of dietary interventions and others. But one of the biggest unmet needs in the field um, was that, that most of these um, ther therapeutic attempts um, involved the addition of microbes or microbial products or whole microbiome configurations in the form of fecal microbiome transplantation um, into an already existing ecosystem, while there was no way to take out or to suppress from this ecosystem um, microbial strains that were shown to be associated or even contributing to, to disease. Um, and, and antibiotics are, are a horrible way to do this because they're non-specific. They kill off many unrelated bugs. They um, uh, induce uh, the emergence of, of, of uh, resistant strains, um, and they have a lot of uh, many uh, adverse effects. So, so this constituted a huge unmet need in the field, um, and, and coming up with the first uh, methodology that would enable to very specifically suppress in, in a silver bullet manner um, a disease-associated or disease-causative causative microbial strain um, in this huge ecosystem without impacting the surrounding uh, um, became a holy grail for us. And, and this, this led to, to, to many failed attempts, but one, one of the ideas was to exploit phages, which are the natural enemies 
of, of bacteria as such form of, of an innovative uh, uh, targeted therapy. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, it's a beautiful and elegant work. And for everyone, the presentation is pinned on top. Uh, you can access it through that link. And um, yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. Sure. And, and thanks again for, for inviting me. Um, and, and I understand that I need to tell you to advance the slides uh, one after the other. So, so next slide. Um, and uh, you should be seeing um, kind of our, our two cents on, on, on our potential contribution to, to the field of microbiome research and, and what my, my two labs at the Weizmann Institute in Israel and at the German National Cancer Center in Germany are trying to contribute um, uh, our new insights uh, towards a mechanistic understanding of host microbiome interactions. And we, we and others increasingly can demonstrate that, that by re reaching such deep mechanistic understanding, we would be able to hopefully contribute towards uh, new principles leading to microbiome-mediated uh, disease treatment. Um, next slide. Um, um, and, and I'm going to talk shortly about treatment. Um, and to be honest, in, in 2023, um, when we talk about uh, widely used microbiome-associated treatment, we mainly talk about three non-specific avenues uh, of, of therapy. Uh, one called prebiotic therapy, which is a nutritional uh, modality um, made up of, of, of fibers aimed at generating a healthy microbiome, whatever that means. A second is fecal microbiome transplantation, which is a brute force way of replacing a sick person's microbiome with a healthy uh, microbiome. Um, and the third um, are probiotics, which were there before we knew there was a microbiome. Um, and, and all of these modalities um, are in many, many cases not sufficiently evidence-based, uh, with the exception maybe of FMT in um, some hospital-acquired uh, infections. Um, but, and, and next slide, but uh, the more encouraging uh, um, uh, aspect of, of this um, maturing field is that um, with, with, with the explosion of microbiome research, we, we are able to contribute towards a number um, of new avenues of data-driven and, and more scientific, scientific uh, rigorous uh, uh, treatment, um, at, at least experimental treatments, and we've contributed to, to personalized nutrition, uh, to, to uh, forms of, of um, microbial transfer, uh, which are more evidence-based than, than your over-the-shelf uh, um, probiotics. These are called precision probiotics um, towards um, metabolite or, or small molecule treatments uh, that bypass the need to understand the microbes that secrete them, um, and, and in manipulating the host side of host microbiome interactions. And I'm not going to talk about all of these today, I'm going to talk about one um, huge unmet need, as I've mentioned before, uh, next slide, uh, which is what we uh, try to do when we encounter a microbial species or strain that is associated or even proven to be contributing towards a disease. How do we get rid of it? And um, to be honest, we have zero means of doing so, and antibiotics are, are quite poor way um, uh, of, of using um, um, this suppressive uh, treatment. So, so this, this unmet need uh, close to, to seven years ago uh, triggered our imagination and we wanted to, to contribute uh, uh, towards this unmet need. Um, next slide. And <coughs> we chose as our model disease, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, which I'm sure is, is not strange to many of the people in the audience, uh, given the fact that um, on the one hand, there is overwhelming evidence 
that um, the gut microbiome contributes causally to IBD pathogenesis, both in animal models and in, in human studies. Um, but um, to, to be, again, very honest, uh, in 30 years of, of uh, IBD um, research, we've quite miserably failed to identify reproducible IBD microbial uh, signatures that, that are causally connected to the disease. Um, we have no effective human microbiome targeting therapeutic uh, approaches. And, and, and still in 2023, IBD treatment still consists mainly of non-personalized and is limit, uh, treatment, which is limited to downstream adaptive immune targets. So to, to next slide, um, I hope you see my four postdocs, uh, Sarah, Denise, Rafa, and, and, and Sharon. Um, um, the, these amazing four postdocs uh, seven years ago uh, took upon this huge challenge um, in trying to um, identify um, IBD strains in humans that contribute uh, towards inflammatory uh, uh, damage um, in these patients and developing the first ever targeted therapy that would um, enable to suppress or even eradicate them. And next slide. Um, and, and the first big question that we had to tackle is um, whether we could identify a human um, commensal uh, or as we call it, pathobiont commensal that enables to, to cause disease in some context, which is associated with worsening uh, uh, IBD across geography. And I emphasize the geographical uh, concept because many of our microbiome uh, studies uh, over the last decade um, are limited by the fact that the microbiome is highly variable between people and is, um, is impacted by, by, by uh, factors such as ethnicity and diet and many other environmental factors. So uh, uh, findings that uh, were found to be relevant to one geographical location were not reproducible in other geographical locations. And to find a common denominator um, uh, strain or strains that contribute causally to IBD necessitated, in our view, um, to, um, to, to look across more than one geographical location. And next slide. Um, so we've assembled um, um, a large cohort of IBD patients and controls in four different countries, in, in France, in Israel, in the U.S., um, and in Germany, um, and we uh, deeply sequenced them for their microbiome using a, a modality called uh, shotgun metagenomic sequencing that enables to look very deeply into the species and strain level and also into functionality. Um, and, and when we did so, the, the first uh, thing that we saw, which, which was very comforting to us uh, as a sanity check, was that the microbiomes of both main variants of IBD, which is Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, were substantially different than those of healthy controls as, as one big group. You can, you can see um, on the left the alpha diversity, which represents the, um, the diversity or the number of, of different strains in a given microbiome, and, and it was lower in, in IBD patients as compared to controls. And on the right side, you can see the beta diversity, which represents the entire complexity or the, the structure of the microbiome, which again was substantially different in human IBD patients as compared to control. So this was true across the entire cohort. And next slide. Uh, but importantly, when we looked at each of the four cohorts separately, we saw exactly the same thing. So the microbiomes in IBD patients in both variants of IBD were different um, um, as compared to controls that were assessed in the same uh, a country um, and, and assumed to, to consume similar diets and so on and so forth. And, and on the right side, you can see that we were also able to look at the functions of the microbiomes uh, by, by this next generation sequencing method and to generate um, a functional 
signature of the microbiome, which was substantially different in IBD patients as compared to controls, um, and was consistent between the different geographical locations um, in disease or healthy individuals. Next slide. And using this very extensive and, and deep microbiome probing, we were able to computationally generate a short list of bacterial strains that were um, very substantially overrepresented in IBD patients as compared to uh, controls across geographies. So you can see here our finalists, our final short list uh, of, 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 strain, of, of species that uh, were overrepresented uh, across the different uh, uh, geographies in IBD patients as compared to controls. And you can see that our number one candidate of, of these uh, very interesting uh, species is Klebsiella pneumonia, uh, which was um, very substantially overrepresented in, in IBD patients as compared to controls across geography and was also overrepresented in patients that were suffering from an acute exacerbation or flaring of their disease as compared to patients um, in remission. Um, so all of these merit investigation, but as a, a first ever uh, a development of, of, of a suppressive um, uh, treatment, we chose to focus on Klebsiella uh, pneumonia. Next slide. And, and you can see here um, in these respective volcano plots from each of the countries that indeed Klebsiella pneumonia was significantly overrepresented and expanded in IBD patients of, of the different sorts as compared to controls across different countries as compared to the local healthy uh, controls in each of the countries. Next slide. Now, you may ask yourself, so, so if Klebsiella pneumonia, as an example, is, is an IBD uh, or a putative IBD causative agent, why don't you just treat the patients with antibiotics? Um, and in addition to all the limitations of antibiotics that I've mentioned before, we wanted to, to look at our data and, and specifically to look at the antibiotic resistant repertoires of each of the microbiomes in each of these patients and control across the different countries. And what we found was that IBD patients featured a very marked antimicrobial resistant uh, uh, um, uh, landscape um, as compared to healthy controls. In other words, they, they, um, their microbiomes or their microbes were very resistant to antibiotics in general and were carrying many antibiotic resistant genes of many sorts. And this very significant difference um, in antibiotic resistance was driven by the family uh, to which Klebsiella pneumonia uh, uh, belongs to. Um, next slide, and, and we can even go down to the genes represented by the family, uh, uh, which is called Enterobacteracea, and, and by Klebsiella pneumonia itself, and we could identify multiple mobile genetic elements and antibiotic-resistant genes that were dramatically overexpressed um, in these microbes in IBD patients as compared to healthy controls across the different geographies, meaning that in addition to all of the limitations of antibiotics that I've mentioned before, these microbes were highly antibiotic resistant, which would mean that antibiotics are not a viable option um, in this case. Um, next slide. Uh, but, but what we really wanted to do is to use the deep genomic data that we've generated in order to uh, reach towards a strain level specificity. We're great believers that going to the resolution of strains below the resolution of, of species would enable us to potentially identify clusters of microbes of the same species that carry virulence factors that would uh, contribute to their function in different diseases. And when we did so um, in hundreds of different samples, we uh, were quite surprised to find a clade or a subgroup of Klebsiella pneumonia strains 
that were overrepresented in IBD patients as compared to, to controls. Um, not only these uh, members of this clade were represented, but, but, but it was quite obvious. Um, we call this clade KP2, and, and this is a highly IBD associated clade of Klebsiella pneumonia, and, and these strains, which are very genomically similar to, to each other, became our prime suspect as the contributors or the potential contributors to IBD uh, in this context. Um, next slide, and, and we've even uh, validated um, the, these uh, observations using specific uh, quantitative PCR probes that were developed to identify only these KP2 strains, and indeed we could see that they were enriched in IBD patients and in IBD patients that were featuring clinical exacerbations as com compared to patients in remission. Um, next slide. Um, um, so, so this told us that Klebsiella pneumonia and specifically the KP2 strains um, are strongly associated with IBD. And, and as I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, we pride ourselves as trying to tackle what I consider to be probably the biggest challenge of our young field, which is to move from correlation and association into causation um, in, in trying to show that microbes don't only associate with disease, but actually contribute mechanistically into disease. So our next question is, can we show um, whether KP2 strains causally drive intestinal inflammation? And to, to and next slide, to, to achieve this task, we performed a very large set of animal uh, uh, experiments um, in mice um, using many different strains of what we call germ-free mice, which are mice that are housed in specialized isolators um, and these mice are sterile. They don't have any microbiomes of their own, um, which enables us to transfer into these sterile mice, um, either single microbes or whole microbiome configurations in, in trying to study whether human microbes impact disease manifestations in this preclinical setting. So, so for the sake of time, I'm just gonna show you a couple of examples of, of these um, experiments. Um, the first experiment utilized germ-free mice that were reporting um, an, um, a very central anti-inflammatory cytokine called um, IL-10. And, and in these mice, we've, uh, uh, so, so, so to, to achieve these experiments, we first isolated hundreds um, of KP2 or non-KP2 Klebsiella pneumonia strains from hundreds of patients uh, in our various uh, cohorts. And then we transferred these individual KP2 or non-KP2 strains into these reporter germ-free mice to see whether they would induce pro-inflammatory cytokines or anti-inflammatory cytokines. And the important feature is the ratio between the pro-inflammatory to the anti-inflammatory response. And to make a very long story short, what we could demonstrate is that the monocolonization with a, KP, with, with a number of KP2 strains from human patients um, induced a very um, small anti-inflammatory response manifesting as low levels of IL-10 and a very potent pro-inflammatory response of the Th1 response, which um, is characterized uh, by uh, interferon gamma secretion. And the ratio between the two uh, uh, was greatly pro-inflammatory um, in mice that were monocolonized with these KP2 uh, uh, strains of, of, of uh, IBD-associated microbes as compared to non-KP2 strains, leading to the conclusion that these strains could contribute to the immune response that contributes or even drives uh, IBD in patients. Next slide. Um, um, a second example involves germ-free mice that lack this anti-inflammatory cytokine uh, uh, IL-10. And these mice under colonized condition uh, are considered 
one of the leading models uh, for human IBD in mice. So, so in the absence of this anti-inflammatory cytokine, these mice spontaneously develop signs of autologous inflammation in the gut, uh, which lead to tissue damage and manifestations that mimic human IBD. Now, these germ-free, these sterile IL-10 reporter mice, were, uh, uh, knockout mice, not reporter mice in this case, uh, were now used as recipients of KP2 or non-KP2 uh, uh, strains from, from human patients to see whether these strains could induce um, an inflammatory response um, mediated by, by these uh, microbiome elements that, that would mimic IBD. And this was indeed the case. You can see here an example in the middle uh, panel of um, three different KP2 strains that induced a very potent um, uh, gut inflammatory response uh, man manifesting as, as an elevation in, in a protein called lipocalin in the middle. Um, in, and in secretion of pro-inflammatory cytokines by uh, T cells um, in, in the gut, um, in the right panel, uh, which is exactly what we would expect in this model of, of IBD when, when disease starts. And next, next slide. And, and when we looked at the histopathological score, which, which basically quantitates the, the tissue damage that results from this uncontrolled inflammation, we saw that um, the monocolonization with these strains of human KP2 uh, was able to induce tissue damage that was very similar to what uh, uh, we would expect uh, in a human IBD setting. And we could even almost perfectly correlate the amount of induction of a pro-inflammatory response by these uh, KP2 strains to the amount of tissue damage that this response was inducing. This is in the right panel. Next slide. So, so this told us that at least in the mouse experimentation setting, uh, we could demonstrate that KP2 strains were able to induce an auto-inflammatory response um, in the gut um, that, that would lead to tissue damage and features that uh, are reminiscent of, of human uh, IBD. Which brought us to the billion-dollar question. Now, now that we've uh, proven uh, causality and, and pinpointed the clade of, of strains that, um, at least in this example, contribute towards this causality, can we find a way to specifically and efficiently suppress them um, and, and to, to induce um, um, an amelioration of, of IBD? Next slide. And, and of the many different things that, that we attempted and, and thought of, we chose to focus on bacteriophages. And bacteriophages are very interesting. These are viruses, but these are special viruses that only um, infect uh, bacteria in a very specific manner. They have uh, receptors and pathways in different bacteria that recognize different phages. And in fact, bacteria and phages are old enemies throughout evolution of each other. Uh, um, so, so the idea was to, to use these enemies of bacteria, um, these lytic phages, as, as means of, of suppressing um, um, uh, a bacteria of, of uh, interest. Um, now, if you move on to, to the next, uh, if you press enter to, to the next part of the slide, um, and then the, the big advantages of using phages as, as an anti-commensal uh, uh, microbiome treatment is that they're very species specific. They have a narrow range of specificity, which would mean that you could potentially target a group of strains without impacting the entire ecosystem that surrounds them. Um, they've been used um, as form of a, I would say, a cultural treatment, a popular cultural treatment, mainly in the former Soviet Union for, for almost a century, um, for reasons that mainly stem for, for the high price of antibiotics. Um, um, so, so there's a lot of 
kind of common data uh, showing that they're non-toxic and, and generally safe for usage in humans uh, because we, we are not aware of, of any um, receptors for phages that um, are expressed on eukaryotic cells and therefore they're recognized as self. Um, next. Um, but, but there are also very big challenges of, of the usage of, of phages as antibacterial therapies. The first is that if you give phages systemically, uh, phages um, are recognized as foreign and induced a very potent immunogenic uh, uh, response. Um, so, so you can only use them systemically for a limited amount of time. And, and the solution we came up with is to use phages for the first time as oral treatment in order to only impact the microbiome in the gut without having to deal with the major systemic immunogenicity um, that develops upon systemic transfer of these phages. And next, uh, but the biggest um, challenge of, of phage therapy is the concept of phage resistance. As I have mentioned, uh, phages and bacteria are old enemies of each other. Uh, phages are very common in, in almost all habitats um, um, in which you can find bacteria. And in response to these uh, phages, bacteria have developed a very wide um, repertoire of antiphage uh, mechanisms of defense, uh, which you know of many of them. Uh, for example, um, restriction endonucleases um, that are so widely used in, in molecular biology are in fact bacterial proteins that degrade phages. Uh, CRISPR, which um, we all, or many of us massively use, is in fact a bacterial system that is able to identify, destroy, and remember phage attacks in order to prevent them in the future. And, and there are many more new uh, such um, um, systems that are being explored. So, so if you were to give a single phage that attacks a bacteria of interest, there is a 100% chance that the bacteria would develop resistance against this phage. And, and the solution we thought of coming up with for this major limitation um, is to develop a phage cocktail in which we would identify different phages that would attack the bacteria of interest through different receptors and mechanisms, and together the bacteria would not be able to develop antiphage resistance. Next. So, so this resulted in a very painful and very long process of hunting for phages, mainly in sewer samples. Uh, um, we connected to the national sewer system in Israel, uh, but also from microbiome samples, from uh, dental waste, you know, under the sink, uh, because phages are also very, um, um, very resistant to, to um, detergents and, and so on and so forth. And, and with this approach, we've uh, assembled a very large library of uh, many, many thousands of phages um, against uh, Klebsiella pneumonia. And um, in, in a screening process, we've subjected these phages to different Klebsiella pneumonia uh, strains um, to, to learn about their specificities and resistant uh, profiles um, next. And, and this generated these very long and boring uh, Excel sheets of resistance and sensitivities of many different phages next, uh, uh, which led to the identification of 48 uh, phages against Klebsiella pneumonia, which seemed to be the best in the screening process, uh, which entered the in vitro validation. And in this in vitro validation step, we took these 48 uh, um, phages and we assembled them into cocktails uh, consisting of three, four or five phages and we subjected them um, into um, Klebsiella pneumonia strains that were very, um, highly resistance in, in different repertoires against different phages. Um, next, and, and this resulted in many different uh, uh, growth 
inhibition results. I'm, I'm not going into the, the boring details, um, but in this in vitro uh, uh, phase, we identified five of the 18 phage combinations which seem to have the best and the widest um, um, Klebsiella pneumonia suppressive capacity when subjected into all of these resistant uh, strains in the in vitro setting. Next. Um, uh, so so we, 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 at this stage, we had five phage cocktails um, that entered the in vivo assessment uh, a process. And in this in vivo assessment process, we took mice, we um, colonized them with resistant Klebsiella pneumonia strains of IBD relevance. And then we gave these mice orally um, the different uh, cocktails of phages to see whether they could feature the same suppressive uh, capacity in the in vivo setting, which is much more complicated and hostile uh, as we see in the in vitro uh, setting. And next, um, and, and this again resulted in, in many phage growth curves, uh, uh, this time uh, when taken from, from mice. And one of the five phage cocktails seemed to be better in its activity against uh, different Klebsiella pneumonia strains as compared to the other. This was called the 5E. This was the co cocktail 5E. Uh, uh, next. And, and after this very long process that took us a year to complete, uh, we declared Cocktail 5E as our, our winner. And I'm sure all of you want to uh, meet the winner next. Um, so this is um, an electron microscopy uh, uh, set of pictures um, showing you the five members of this 5E uh, phage cocktail. Of course, we sequence them very deeply. We, we, we understand how um, they, they come from different families. We, we, we know their virulence factors, um, and, and we now know many things about these uh, five phages that form the cocktail uh, next. And, and as a sanity check, we were able to go back into our IBD and control uh, um, microbiome bacterial databases and to identify that the receptors that recognize these five phages were markedly enriched in IBD uh, microbiomes as compared to controls, which, which was an, imp an important uh, sanity check uh, uh, for us. Next. So, so as a summary of, of, this, um, of this stage, um, we, we uncovered um, in, a, in a very painful iterative process a phage combination um, <coughs> that could potentially suppress um, um, the KP2 uh, strains that, that were contributing towards IBD. But now the burden of proof was on us to try and demonstrate that this phage cocktail would actually suppress intestinal autoinflammation in the preclinical mouse setting. And next. Uh, so we started with uh, wild-type germ-free mice. These are, again, these sterile mice. We mono-inoculated them with representatives of the KP2 strains coming from uh, humans. We gave them the, um, the, the phage cocktail. And as you can see on the right uh, panel, when we only gave them the human um, pro-inflammatory uh, KP2 strains in, in the, second, uh, the second bar or the second group of, of, of dots, you can see that uh, these strains induced a potent pro-inflammatory response manifesting as an interferon gamma release from, from CD4 T cells in the gut, as I've shown you several times uh, in previous slides. But importantly, when we added on top of it the five-phage cocktail, it not only suppressed the microbes that induce the response, it actually suppressed the response itself. Next. Um, but but, 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 but the, 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 the biggest challenge was to show that this has an effect on um, a model of colonic inflammation that mimics some features of human IBD. In, in this 
uh, model, uh, we, we chose a, um, a model called dextrin sodium sulfate, in which we give a toxin which leads to uncontrolled inflammation in the large intestine of mice, uh, which mimics uh, several aspects of, of human IBD. Um, and when we um, gave uh, mice that carried the KP2 strains, which contributed to, towards their inflammation, the five-phage uh, phage, the, the five phage cocktail, we could see that the phages in this inflammatory setting were able to um, suppress um, the, the KP2 strains. You can see on the left how they do it in the lumen, and on the right, how they can even do it in KP2 strains that are attached to the lining epithelial cells um, in, the, in the host. These, these are the bacteria which are most important because they affect the host from a closer uh, range next. And the result of this uh, bacterial suppression was a reduction in multiple cytokines that represent the pro-inflammatory response that KP2 strains induce upon colonization of mice in this DSS uh, model. You can see here some examples. And next, and um, you can see that the resultant tissue damage was also dampened or ameliorated by the administration of the 5-phage cocktails um, as featured by colonoscopy, which we performed in mice on the left, and by histopathological score of sections of the large intestine in the middle and on the right, which featured a reduction in inflammation and tissue damage upon the suppression of the KP2 bacteria in these mice. Um, next, and we could even follow the same model for much longer periods of time and assess the potential development of uh, KP2 strains that would become resistant to the phage cocktail. And, and we couldn't see such resistance developing, probably because we gave five different phages um, that, that were acting in harmony to suppress the bacteria. Um, so you can see that the bacteria uh, were significantly suppressed on the left. And in these longer periods of, of uh, uh, inflammation, we could even see that the five-phage cocktail was able to reduce substantially the level of mortality of these inflama inflammation-induced uh, uh, mice on the right. Next. Um, so, so this told us that the phage cocktail, at least in the preclinical uh, setting, was, was able to suppress the bacteria and more importantly, suppress the inflammatory responses and the tissue damage that these bacteria were uh, generating. Um, but as a final part of this uh, study, we wanted to go back to the bedside quote unquote, to see whether we can scrape the surface in demonstrating that such a multi-phage uh, uh, treatment could be um, potentially used as human therapeutics. Um, and the first thing that uh, we did next um, is to um, test our phages in an ex vivo human-like gut system. This is a system uh, which, is, which consists of, of, of different containers, um, which sequentially contain different uh, goodies that represent the different compartments along the human gastrointestinal tract. So for example, the containers that um, represent uh, different features of the stomach are acidic and, and they have pepsin and, and so on and so forth. And then the proximal small intestine com uh, uh, containers have bile acid and pancreatic juice. And then uh, the, the colonic ones have a large uh, assortment of, of human microbiomes and so on and so forth. And, and this system allows you to pass, in this case, the phages from one compartment to the other and to see what the, the shifting biophysical uh, properties of, of, of the human gastrointestinal tract are doing to the phages. Um, and, and, and next, when, when we did this, we learned a very important lesson, which is 
that when we pass the phages through the compartments that represent the gastric uh, uh, compartment, uh, which were very acidic, we saw that the acidity um, substantially reduced the, the, the numbers and the viability of the phages that we've administered almost to undetectable levels. So the, the acidity in the stomach was destroying our phages. However, next, when we <coughs> counteracted and, and, and basically um, added um, um, acid suppressants uh, uh, to the stomach compartment um, and, and the stomach was no longer super acidic, then the phages persisted uh, uh, through this uh, compartment and following uh, the, the stomach, um, the phages persisted in very nice quantities throughout the, the chambers that represent the, the different regions of the small and the large uh, intestine. Uh, next, and, and this led us to the first inhuman phase one clinical trial in which we assembled um, a group of healthy uh, young volunteers um, and tested um, um, the, the uh, two components of the phage, uh, uh, of the phage cocktail um, uh, on them. And given the result that I've shown you in the previous slide, all of these individuals were given proton pump inhibitors, uh, which, um, which, which prevent the acidity in, in the stomach and would enable these phages to survive the stomach and, and to uh, reach the other more uh, uh, clinically relevant uh, compartments uh, along the human gastrointestinal tract. Um, th this was a very special trial because in contrast to, to all trials that we've engaged in and probably you've engaged in, uh, we didn't just sample the, these participants for their stool, we actually collected everything that they've generated, all the stool that they've generated throughout a week of, of very close follow-up. Um, and, and you can imagine our minus 80 freezers, but, but this enabled us to quantify very accurately the number, the proliferation, the expansion, or the, the, the destruction of these phages um, in, in a very quantitative manner uh, as compared to what we've given these individuals. Next. Um, so um, um, the results were that uh, these two representative phages um, persisted super nicely uh, throughout the gastrointestinal tract of, of these uh, participants. And in fact, they seem to uh, have reached a concentration in the lower gastrointestinal tract that was a thousand fold higher than what would be expected to um, efficiently kill the KP2 strains if these were IBD uh, uh, patients. So, so it seems to be at least feasible and even um, to some extent self-propelling uh, self because uh, even after a few days that we've given these phages to, to these individuals and we've stopped, we could see that the phages could persist um, along their gut, meaning that maybe they were meeting some, um, some of their targets and were persistent to some extent for, for these few days. Next. Uh, of course, we couldn't assess in this first in human phase one clinical trial whether the phages would be efficiently eradicating Klebsiella pneumonia uh, KP2 strains because these were healthy individuals. They don't carry any uh, Klebsiella pneumonia. You can see here the shotgun metagenomic sequencing from these individuals. They basically don't have KP2 strains uh, um, as would be expected next. But what we could see is whether these specific phages have an off-target effect against unrelated bacterial strains in the microbiome. And we saw that this was not the case. In fact, um, the microbiome remained stable and we saw no statistically significant differences in this non-KP2 harboring uh, microbiome 
following the um, administration of phages as compared to the control group. Uh, and I, I forgot to mention, we had a control group that only received vehicles throughout the trial. Next. Um, so so the, the story that I tried to share with you um, has very many implications for, for IBD, but it, I think it has potentially greater implications even beyond uh, uh, which pertain to the entire uh, microbiome field um, with respect to the potential of using a phage-based uh, therapeutic pipeline to develop targeted treatments for many other strains in IBD and for strains that are associated with any microbiome-associated uh, disease that you can imagine. And next, um, and, and the pipeline we propose is that one would identify and test human disease-associated strains, um, preferentially across different uh, geographies and ethnicities, um, isolate representatives, and test them for causality in the preclinical uh, mouse uh, settings. Uh, next, and then uh, one could generate through an iterative process a phage combination that would target um, the strain clade of, of interest. And now this took us years to develop, but now that we know all the stupid mistakes that we've made, which I'm not sharing with you, uh, we think that this process could be expedited much more uh, efficiently than, than we've done. And, and with follow-up projects, we are generating such cocktails much faster. Um, next. And, and then once you have a, a phage combination, you can treat it or, or you can test it in the preclinical uh, mouse setting uh, for its suppressive activity and its disease preventive activity next, and then take it to the uh, uh, human bedside to, to test it in the form of, of clinical trials. Um, and, and next, and, and in the, the larger uh, kind of bird's eye view, um, what we hope would be um, another kind of tool that we would add to the precision medicine uh, shelf, uh, in addition to the many others which we, we and others are developing, which I'm not sharing with you uh, today, that would enable to increasingly harness um, science and data-driven approaches in order to, um, to target microbiome uh, uh, elements um, and treat humans uh, in, in, in therapies that are tailored uh, to the individual. Uh, this would also enable us to, of course, to use such treatment as, as a research tool um, to, to test the, the importance or lack thereof of different strains uh, um, in the preclinical uh, setting. Um, next, and, and this brings me to the end of my talk and I would like to deeply thank uh, the many people from across the world who have uh, joined me uh, for this uh, quite long journey um, in many different uh, and exciting uh, projects. Um, I couldn't do this without them and I've mentioned the champions, but many other people are involved. And uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank uh, the many uh, clinician teams from across the world and leading basic science teams that have teamed up with us in, in um, generating this, this uh, advance and, and this project and the spin-off company that we've generated based on, on the results um, of, of, of these uh, experiments called Biomix, which is um, upscaling the efforts in order to come up with new combination phage therapies for a number um, of human um, uh, microbiome-associated disease. Of course, all the funding agencies that have made all of this uh, possible next. And uh, as of the last uh, uh, four years, um, my second affiliation uh, in parallel to the Weizmann Institute at the German National Cancer Center, the DKFZ in Heidelberg, in which we have a, a great group of, of uh, young scientists that are uh, utilizing all the 
exciting tools that we've developed at the Weizmann in order to study the possible contributions um, of the microbiome towards cancer development, progression, and uh, treatment responsiveness, which is a completely different story for, for another time, but um, I thank them uh, as well, and I think I'll stop here. Thanks. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful presentation and for doing all this work. I know you said, you know, it was, you know, very tedious and and like a, a power, <laughs> like powering through that. But this will, you know, these lists of different phages and all this different data will in the future be so valuable. So um, this is really wonderful. Um, and I wanted to uh, tell the audience, please um, share your questions or raise your hand if you have questions. And in the meantime, I'll start asking um, a few questions. Um, and, and then if you raise a hand, I'll bring you up. And um, it's really interesting uh, to see that, you know, the cocktail you use that, that it can basically survive uh, long enough uh, to become effective in the future, like what's the time span of um, that you still find phages in the body? Is there, you know, does it at some point ebb down? And if, um, and how long does it take? Yeah, it's a wonderful uh, question, um, mainly because I don't know the answer. Um, and, and um, I, I would say this, first of all, we're talking about strictly, strictly lytic phages. We, we um, try to avoid lysogenic phages that, that would affect, uh, for example, antibiotic resistance uh, spectrums in bacteria. We don't want to, to cause any damage. Um, and and, and the, 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 the advantage, one of the advantages of, of this uh, combination phage treatment approach is that um, at least theoretically, as long as these phages meet their target in the body, they would invade their bacterial targets, uh, propagate within the bacterial cells, explode the bacteria, and from one phage you'll have a thousand phages and they would be self-persistent. Now, of course, this is in theory true, but in, in reality, uh, what we think is that this may constitute a live treatment, but it would have to be replenished, and, and the frequency of replenishment would probably depend on, on the phage combinations and on the bacterial growth rates and, and inhibition rates. So, so it would probably be different from bacteria to bacteria. We've seen some hints in our very first uh, crude human trial uh, for such persistent, but we, we are not even close to understanding the full kinetics of, of this approach. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was imagining you could have this one day as a preventive type of medicine, especially in countries where you have, for example, very high rates of helicobacter uh, and then related cancer risks, would that be something um, that, you know, that you were thinking of? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you, could, you can think of, of any uh, commensal that is associated with disease and, and, and you can um, um, potentially imagine that it could be, this could be used as a very safe and easy uh, suppressive treatment um, that would avoid the need for repetitive antibiotics. So, so Helicobacter is just one example. You know, Helicobacter is a commensal um, in the human gastrointestinal tract. It, it, it got a very bad reputation being the first and, and given its, its strong uh, contribution to, to, to cancer, but it's not the only one by any means. And, and so, so 
um, you can regard it as a commensal, uh, just like any other commensal, which in some cases needs to be suppressed. And this could generate uh, one platform for such a suppression. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and um, and really uh, wonderful. Would phages also be able to attack other um, things like not just um, you know bacteria? Uh, you, you know, you could think of, I don't know, cancer, uh, gut, you know, in the gut or so. Would that one day maybe be possible? Is that something you maybe are thinking of? Well, the the, the issue with phages or, or one of the safety advantages of phages, that to the best of our knowledge, there are no eukaryotic receptors for phages expressed on eukaryotic cells. So so this is why they are considered so, so safe. So, so thinking of so the possibility of direct phages, phage effects on human cells um, is, is probably, the, the possibility is quite low. Um, although there could be, for example, and there have been some, some studies suggesting that the genomic material in phages, the DNA in phages, um, you know, uh, could generate sensing by innate immune receptors that recognize foreign DNA, uh, which could lead to, to some host reactivity, which is indirect and non-specific. Uh, what the clinical implications of this are, we, we don't know, and we, we estimate that they're quite low. Um, but um, since we know, for example, that um, um, regions in our body that were previously considered to be sterile, such as even tumors, there, there is a low biomass uh, microbial population in tumors that was discovered just a few years ago, uh, um, which potentially could 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 lead to, to um, you know, contributions to, to cancer um, or, or to, to impact tumor microenvironment, one could think of systemic um, administration of phages that would swim to the tumor and would attack these intratumoral bacteria and therefore um, uh, prevent or treat uh, features of cancer. And all of these aspects are being explored um, as, as we think, uh, as we speak. Yeah, I can imagine. And of course, I would assume, um, let's say, you know, in elderly patients, there's a really high rate of infections on legs, um, of wounds, like related to diabetes and so on. So uh, would that also be something, uh, you know, your company or your lab is maybe trying to address in the future with phages? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so the concept of phages treating a pathogenic bacterial infection has been attempted and succeeded in some cases before us. Uh, um, um, systemic effects of uh, phage, single phage treatments on sepsis and on um, antibiotic resistant infections that are life-threatening are, are out there as, as case reports, if you can find them, um, and, and are being developed. So, um, you know, these are time-limited um, attempts given, given the immunogenicity, but in some cases, uh, uh, very impressive successes have been um, have been have been reported. Um, I think that the, the novelty of, of what we do is that we do not uh, target these systemically very aggressive uh, um, pathogens, but we actually are trying to specifically fish out commensals from a very dense and heterogeneous uh, a commensal population in the microbiome uh, without harming the, the surrounding. Um, um, so these are two different approaches that could be complementary. You could even think of combining a, an oral and a systemic phage uh, therapy um, to not only target the commensals, but also target the commensals which are locally invasive 
um, and in some cases could, could lead to clinical manifestations and, and improve your treatment. Again, these are things that we and others are checking um, um, and exploring as potential future developments of this treatment uh, approach. Yeah, I'm imagining like a, instead of an antibiotic ointment, just have a phages ointment for people. But that's probably a little bit, <laughs> you know, when somebody gets a scratch, like elderly, just have a cream with phages. I don't, I don't know. Probably it's not possible. Do you need to keep them refrigerated or? No, no. Phages are. Phages are exceedingly stable. You can find them in soil. You can find them in sewer. You can. That's why we looked for them in sewer and in dental waste because the bacteria get killed by detergents and and, and so on and so forth. But the phages persist. Um, so, so you know wherever you can expect large quantities of human excretions, um, um, even when um, you, you know uh, uh, we we uh, get rid of the bacteria in sewer by by different. Uh, by different uh, detergents and, and so on and so forth, the, the phages persistent and you would find high concentrations of these phages and these phages would come from bacteria that are relevant to the human gut. Same for uh, dental uh, extrusions uh, that would be enriched for phages that come uh, or, or that, that would attack the oral microbiome commensals. Um, so phages are exceedingly uh, stable. Um, they do not necessarily need to be refrigerated um, and therefore they're very convenient for usage. I'm imagining toothpaste, detergents, oh, <laughs> everything we, we, with pages. I'm sorry. Um, uh, um, Dr. Shah, did you have a question? Yeah, thank you so much, Aaron, for your wonderful talk. So let me start in my question. So how much early you think that we can use uh, the phage therapy for example in a pediatric patients so in a case of the you know side effects as well as the uh, products that we have you think that by considering the allergy reaction and all of those side effects that we might see uh, in a pediatric patient you think how much early we are able to use yeah. that in a clinical yeah it's a great question uh because on the one hand, you know, um, uh, vulnerable populations uh, such as, you know, pregnant females and uh, children and, and, and so on and so forth are, are, are the ones that we kind of are most careful in terms of clinical um, attempts and clinical trials uh, because they, they are vulnerable. Um, and, and so I don't know. But, but on the other hand, the, the pediatric population is, is also very attractive from, from this aspect because the, the, the healthy normal configuration of, of my, microbiomes uh, um, that we carry for our entire lives uh, is formed in the first two or three years of life. This is the window of opportunity and impacting um, a disease causing or disease associated uh, a microbiome configuration at this window of opportunity would be expected to be most um, efficient. Um, so, so the answer to your question is we don't know, but I, we think we, we definitely need to carefully but um, persistently uh, study this uh, because um, you know of all the different microbiome interventions i would guess that uh, phages could be of the most of, of the safest uh, interventions but you know th this is just speculation land and we need to do the experiment also so 
while considering that you just mentioned about the pro-inflammatory as well as all of those interleukin that they are involved include the regulatory which you just mentioned i think as part of your slide that was il10 if i'm i'm right so if you want to consider in some of the uh, condition for example like a glioblastoma for the again i'm asking about the pediatric and as you know that when we are thinking about the cancer environment is totally different area but however phages they are very favorable for uh, you know like a cargo and moving the drug to the uh, targeted point actually and for example glioblastoma you think that how much they can be beneficial in that early age do you have any kind of hypothesis based upon your research yeah, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, question I, I have absolutely no clue um, one could think of, of uh, two, two options for for a cargo a, a cargo feature uh, one is of the bacteria themselves right because because I've mentioned that we, we increasingly know that uh, tumors harbor um, a very low biomass microbiome inside them, which is specific to different tumors. Um, and if we understand how the microbes got there, or if we could even give the microbes, the, the bacteria systemically and, and expect that they would preferentially concentrate in the right tumor, then one could use the bacteria as, um, as, 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 as a um, kind of a, a cargo uh, uh, a cargo-loaded uh, uh, treatment that would uh, reach uh, the tumor preferentially. That, that's one speculative um, but researched uh, uh, possibility. The second is to use the phages against bacteria. So to target the phages against bacteria that we know are concentrated in the tumors, and then the, the phages would home into the tumor through their recognition of the bacteria and would release their cargo. These are very fantastic uh, possibilities. Again, we need to do the experiment, but, uh, but these are of, of, of many different options that these discoveries uh, develop uh, or, or, or make possible um, in future uh, projects. And you prefer the conjugated therapy in comparison with the monotherapy, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on, on, on what your purpose is. If, if you don't care about phage resistance developing, you just need to, to carry uh, some, some um, radio-labeled or, or chemotherapeutic or immunotherapeutic agent to the tumor for a short period of time, then it could give a single phage. But if, if you really want to generate a, um, um, a more long-lasting effect, um, especially in suppressing bacteria, then I think, um, at least currently, there's no other way than using the combination phage therapy that we've developed. What about the duration by considering the mono or conjugated? Again, you know, if you take it to simple terms and you consider uh, an in vitro bacterial colony consisting of a million copies of uh, whatever, E. coli, and you would give a single phage, there's a 100% chance that one of the million copies of E. coli would spontaneously have um, a mutated receptor for that phage. So there's a 100% chance that resistance would develop uh, to one phage. Now, the more phages you add on to this equation, the lesser the possibility of a bacteria developing resistance. The duration, I don't know. There's, I have no clue, to, to be honest. You know, I've, I've, uh, I, all I can say is that it probably will change between different combinations and different bacteria, depending on, on the pharmacokinetics of both 
components, but uh, this is something that, that we would definitely need to explore in future trials. And what about the route? For example, PO-IV nebulizing, what type you think? What kind of route? You know, depending, de depending on what you want to target, if you want to target commensals in the gut, um, while avoiding the immunogenicity, then the oral route would be the most favorable. This is what we've tried in this project. If you also want to target locally invasive commensals, such as uh, we know uh, exist in uh, primary sclerosing cholangitis and other associated diseases, then you would probably need to um, combine an oral and an intravenous uh, um, therapy. If you want to target a pathogen that is systemically uh, dispersed in sepsis or um, um, or in systemic infection of, of many sorts, I don't see any way to do this without giving the fate systemically. So it really depends on where you find the bacteria um, and that really determines uh, which route you would uh, use. Thank you so much for your answers, Aaron. I'm passing the mic to Katerina. Yes, thank you so much. And um, I want to be respectful of your time. We've been going a little bit over an hour. So um, thank you so much for coming here, presenting and uh, answering our questions. This was really um, a really interesting uh, discussion and it's such an interesting and important work. So uh, we are curious to follow you along in the future and maybe we hear you back one day um, to talk about your cancer research. Thank <laughs> Bye, thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for coming, asking questions, posting comments in the chat. Um, and um, yeah, we are really honored that uh, Professor Elenov, that you were here today. And um, if you like discussions like this, just follow the club. The next one will be um, with uh, Dr. Chu from the Brookhaven uh, National Lab um, from the Particle Collider at the Star Alliance. Um, he will talk about the new type of quantum entanglement that uh, was used to see inside of um, nuclei. So um, it's a different type of discussion, but uh, I think it will be also interesting. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Elenov. And um, we wish you all the best for the future. Uh, it's totally egoistic to wish you all the best. And I'm looking forward to have the toothpaste <laughs> with the pages now. Okay. okay, thank you so much, everyone. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.